This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. To the Agoda Convention. My name is Ariel Sadwin. I live in Baltimore, Maryland. And I have the wonderful schus of serving as Agoda Sistral's Mid-Atlantic, Maryland and Mid-Atlantic Regional Director for the last 15 years. It's a covet to welcome you all today. And thank you for being mechabed us at the session to open up the convention. Just to make a couple of housekeeping announcements. Um, we are going to allow questions to be asked, but they're only those that are submitted, uh, not those that are shot out from the audience. So, there are cards here, index cards here with pens, for those who still use pens. There is a session about technology for the down, so I guess, you know, this is the old-fashioned crowd. Um, you can also submit them via text message or email. Uh, if you want to take down the number, or if you have your phones out, uh, the, uh, the email is, is easier to remember. It's questions at agudahmd.org, A-G-U-D-A-H-M-D.org. That's for a different session, Dr. Rosenshine. As well, uh, you can text, send a text message to, uh, to 410, those Marylanders familiar with that number, 410-205-9044, kind of. Um, okay, so in this session, um, I will be presenting, uh, based on my experiences working on these issues uh, in the field of advocacy uh, and how we deal with them. Proactively, reactively, uh, the Rashiva Lavrovopiansky will be speaking from the Torah and Ashkapa perspective, and Rabbi Kobri will be speaking from his perspectives of a person with rich experiences in the in the journalism field, maybe the sociological field, uh, as an attorney and someone who's been working uh, in in the media for many years. So we're gathered here uh, at a session called "Religious Rights: What Is It All About." Hard to make heads or tails out of that title. Uh, religious rights is, is an enormous field of focus. What is it all about? I mean, we could probably have a whole convention just dedicated to the, con- to the conversation of religious rights and how we deal with it and what issues we make, what we don't make, uh, how far do we go, what are the consequences, and you know, the psakim of Das Tyre and how to deal with it. But uh, religious rights is... is L'chaira, the Yisrael of Agudas Yisrael of America. Being here in the Medina Shel Chesed, as they call it, where 40% of world Jewry is, we have opportunities the likes of which we never had. Our ancestors never had those opportunities to exercise our faith freely. The Bill of Rights, in the opening amendment of the Bill of Rights, it talks about the free exercise of faith. So what a wonderful thing. So then... But as, as we all know, it's not so simple. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Gurus Yisrael of Maryland began operations in November 2007, 15 years ago. Uh, I was a newly hired director, fresh out of Nari Yisrael Kail. Uh, I was just starting to figure things out. The primary motivation for our office, as was told to me, was to go ahead and help the Maistas, help the yeshivas support, find uh, legislative fixes 
to get funding to the families, tuition, textbooks, all types of programs. This is before security grants was even much of a conversation. But one of the main conversations that, was, that were coming to me from people is, how are we going to deal with this situation, that situation, religion, religious rights, religious freedoms? I was very lucky uh, to, to be living in Baltimore and, and becoming acquainted with Rabbi Abba Cohen, who for many, many years has been the Agudas man in Washington and expert on, on many of these matters. Uh, we set up a Sunday morning charusashaf where we would sit and talk through the issues just to mentor me and to acclimate me to many of the issues. And it was one of those weekly sessions that I asked Rabbi Abba, I said, if somebody asks you, you know, what we do, how would you go ahead and express it? So we started discussing it and debating it. And soon after, we were, we were making our first brochure uh, for our, the, the Maryland office. And, uh, and the designer asked me, so, you know, what are you going to put on the cover? You know, obviously, the name of the organization, but, you know, how are you going to go ahead and tight shop exactly what the organization does? So I went back to Abba and I said, no, what do we say? What are we calling it? So he thought, and he sent me an email a couple of days later, and he said, protecting our freedoms, advocating our interests. We have so many freedoms in this country, but they need to be protected. We have our interests, which need advocacy. That's more referring to the piece of pursuing funds for the yeshivas. But protecting our freedoms was the primary slogan of the organization. That's what comes first. Uh, Even today, 15 years later, our website, right on top, protecting our freedoms, advocating our interests. We added one when our organization became very involved in constituent services. We also write, serving our community. But Kaidam Kol is protecting our freedoms. So going back to what I mentioned earlier, if we live in this Medina Shal Chesed, why are we expending such enormous effort on the issues of protecting our religious freedoms and rights? Why, Why is that such an incumbent issue that we are facing. So, obviously, this is an enormous question, like I mentioned. And it depends on what the religious issue is that we're talking about, and who or what is the entity that's, so to speak, denying our freedoms. For some of the items, the authorities are simply unaware of our observances. Generally, and even more nuanced, they're somewhat familiar. Uh, An example that came our way, which was something I never expected to, to, to receive as a question, as a concern, uh, the issue of Seamus burial became a problem due to environmental issues, environmental protections, where you can bury something in the ground and the, the impact it's going to have. Uh, obviously, if somebody owns a field, who's going to know what they bur- they're burying there? But, you know, who knows what will happen? Maybe something will be found there and they'll get into trouble and it'll end up being a chil Hashem or worse, or worse on the civil level, criminal level potentially. So I reached out to my contacts in the governor's office and said, uh, I have a, a very unique issue that you may have never heard of, but yet it's an issue of importance to our faith. I explained what exactly the issue was and why we need and that you can't just go ahead and, and you know, eviscerate holy texts. You can't just go ahead and incinerate them. You can't go ahead and you can't, you know, burn them. You can't just bury them in landfills. So there was a very specific place, uh, the construction and debris landfills, which does not provide the same kind of design, as you may imagine. And we ended up getting a special exemption from the Secretary of the Environment. 
When it comes to Shabbos issues, of course, you know, most Goyim out there in today's day and age, especially in, in cities and states where Yidin are prevalent, why do you need to leave work on Friday afternoon if it takes a half hour to get home? Shabbos is 4.30, leave at 4. You'll get home in time. What happens if there's traffic? I have to just run home and just bench lift right then and there, straight home from work after a full day. You know, I could take a shower in the morning. The food's got to go in the oven. So carefully explain relationships, express it in a, in a sensitive manner. They can understand. They'll appreciate the fact that you're explaining it to them. And in all likelihood, unless you have a hostile partner, they'll be understanding and they'll make an accommodation. COVID lockdowns. As governors were issuing executive orders right and left on who can go out, when, how, they're not going to know all the issues that we have, like going to the mikveh, gathering 10 people to make a chasana. You can't have just 10 people. If, the, if, if 10 people is the, is the allowed amount for a gathering, then you need a minion. Where's the kala? Where's the kala's mother? Mother-in-law. Careful conversations, careful education goes a long way. However, in other, in other areas of religious practice, it actually comes into conflict. It's not just an accommodation that they don't know. It's an actual conflict. Another example, obviously, there are many working to prevent unnecessary autopsies. Medical examiners have a job to investigate. It's their job to get the answers, especially if there is a crime involved and there's a prosecutor who's chomping at the bit, wants to put away a murderer, who says they're going to be him not to do an autopsy and not to do it the way you want to do it. Virtual autopsy, that they don't have to go ahead and, and make any incisions. It's made a lot of progress in the field, but it doesn't take care of all the scenarios, and sometimes they are insisting on doing it. So again, relationships, careful explanation, explaining with, with a certain level of passion and, and sensitivity what the issues are, and maybe you'll find somebody who's, who's willing to listen, and they can do something a little bit differently. They can spare some of the bise hames. Then we come to the legislatures when they're making laws. Lawmakers are trying to pass bills, whether it's something that they're passionate about or a special interest group, especially on some of these very, very compelling items that are going on in today's day and age. Even if they are aware of our religious needs, they may oppose it. Powerful groups investing resources, well-connected lobbyists who are all driven and passionate when it comes to some of these areas, extremely careful assessment is necessary. What are the consequences? Is there room for compromise? What will be the collateral damage? Again, countless examples that every office, that every Aguda office, Haskonim, Rabbanim across the country, across the world are all familiar. One area which is somewhat unique in Maryland, which has not been as much of a conversation in, in other places, and I see our leader, Reb Chaim David, sitting here, conversations I've had with him countless times on this topic, is the policies in Maryland that they came to us and said, we're continuing to fund your programs, but we're afraid that the protections are not there for students, especially students who identify as LGBTQ. We have to have more, more carefully worded anti-discrimination policies. Now, these policies may come and put into place 
language which could be contrary to our Messiah, and in a manner that could potentially be a Chil Hashem. So in our instance, B'chastei Hashem, we were able to work with the, our, our partners, the groups similarly focused, and with our Rabbanim, to get the right hadrach of what we can say, what we can say, how to, how not to. And we were able to come up with a way that we can continue to participate in the programs. But how long is that going to last? When is it going to become a situation that even what we're trying to say is going to be perceived incorrectly? We're mispalal, that the Rabbanu Shalom continues to guide us through every difficult case that is presented to all of us, and that we can make sure that we continue to make a Kiddush Hashem and not to compromise on our values. I will now turn over the session to our panelists. Uh, first we'll call up the Rashiva Rabban Lapiansky, the Rashiva of Yeshiva Greater Washington, Tafaris Gedalia, where he has been for more than 25 years. Prior to that, he spent many years in Yeshiva Smir Yushalayim, first as a Talmud, then as a Marbet's Tire for many years. He has authored numerous forum and books, and we are Zaycha to hear him first. And then right after the Rashiva speaks, we have Rabbi Eitan Kobri, an attorney who has served, who served for, for several years as an associate general counsel at the Aguda. He's also an editor and an author, the managing editor of the journal Dialogue, which has graced the convention bags many times, as well as being a writer for Mishpacha magazine. He's also the author of a new book called Greatness, containing portraits of terror personalities of past and present, it is my COVID task, Ron Lapiansky, to speak with us. Good evening. Um, I feel a bit awkward to speak with Chaim David here. He's the Mardish Schmeitzer. So, uh, speaking about politics and speaking about religious freedoms and so on, it's obviously it's a topic that probably is the most dominant topic of the Ishtadlos of Agudas Yisrael, and therefore covering it a few minutes is absurd, but there's, there are one or two points that I would like to try to present that I think are important for us. We grow up with a certain, um, certain amount of stories and a certain um, musr, I would say, that we picture that the most appropriate and right thing to do when we're confronted with non-Torah shkafes, anti-Torah shkafes, government rules and regulations, is kanoi kinesi, shem Hashem tell them the way it is. Tell them. Let them hear. Their world doesn't get destroyed. The marble came because of this. And, and on and on and on. And we get defensive. Kind of, yeah, but you know, so we're compromises. It's about money. We're embarrassed, and so on. It, it's part of a certain American mindset that speaking your mind is the most admirable thing. The louder and the more stronger, the better it is, and so on. It's a certain mindset that puts us on the defensive. For those of us who are more from, well, the the kanoim sound. From and we sound sort of compromising. For those of us that are American, they sound strong and we sound wimpish 
And we sort of uh, feel, well, what, what is Ashkafonit? How do we understand it? So I'd like to present uh, a sort of two Gemaras, two, um, two different perspectives, and we'll try to understand. We're coming to Hanukkah. In Hanukkah, there were Gzairus and Kal Yisrael. We don't have, in the Gemara in Bavli, we don't have exactly which Gzairus. We have just the, the they were Meshakets, the Davonim in the Besamigdash, and so on, Davonim Mizbeach. But in Megillas Antiochus, it's called Megillas Nechashmoy, different, that's the most reliable um, medrash that we have about it. It says that they came to be Mavatl Mila, Shabbos, and something called Chodesh, and we stood up, and we fought, and Akash gave us Rabbi Yad Matim, and that's how we're victorious. So someone will learn from this Gemara that the right thing to do is to stand up strong, proclaim loud and strong what exactly it is we believe in, and even if it seems as if the odds are stacked against us, Mila Shemilai and Vachulu. That would seem to be the approach. There's a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Tzintainis. There was a, there's a certain Brysa called Megillus Tainis. Megillus Tainis is a listing of all of the Yontavim in Klal Yisrael when Xeris became Batl. Uh, we don't say Tachnon, and if, we, if that Megillah was around and, kept, and we kept adding dates, we probably would never say Tachnon, because almost every Xeris and every date has been Xeris and become Batl. So the Gemara says it's become Batl because they're general Tsars. But it says the following. It says, There was a Psura Teva to the Jews. The Malchus was Geiser, Shalyaska Torah, they shouldn't learn Torah, Vishalayamolu Benehem, they shouldn't mal their children, Vishalu Shabbasis, and Vishmachal Shabbos. It sounds very familiar. It's, it almost, this Chaydish is unclear what it means in, 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 in uh, Megillus Hashemnoim, but maling and Chal Shabbos. Ma'asi Yehuda ben Shamur v'chaverev. So we have. Yehuda Maccabi, and we have Yehuda Meshamur. Holchu v'natlu Eitzah. They went and got advice. Now, who do you suppose they got advice from? Mimatrinus Achas, from a Roman lady. Uh, a, a Roman lady. Shekol g'dayme roime mitzvinetzlo. She had the most fashionable salon, or whatever, and that's where g'dayle roime were around. She said, Go and demonstrate. Now, one of our problems is that the word hafgana has a modern meaning, which includes, but not only burning buses, burning rails, throwing stuff at the police, calling them Nazis, and so on, that we, that we have a whole um, vocabulary of hafgana. They went... So there was this Roman gathering of Roman nobles, and they went and they spoke. Omer, they said, We're brothers. We're cousins. Esav and Yisrael, we're, we're, we're like, we're tight. We've got the same father, same mother. Why is it 
that you have to be guys all these gzeres. Ubitlam. They are mevatlet. Voisayema so yantif. So the facts are almost the same. And the reaction is extremely different. Minakotza lakotza. Why? What? So the Chazanish used to be very annoyed when people would say Musashmuzen and they would push one Chazal. And the Chazanish Kedarko in his learning said, There's a sugya. And you need to take the full complement of sugyas and understand the big picture and where each one fits in. So here we have a major sugya of how do we deal with um, threats to Kalisol? Mila Shemelai or Achinuato Neaveim Echo Danachnu Manishtamino Kolo Umois and so on. These are from one end of the spectrum, other end of the spectrum. So the first point is that's what you need Dastaira for. In other words, someone has to weigh the sugyas and decide what approach. Anyone that has one tool in his kit only is not um, Alpitaira. Taira has two sugyas here. We have Hanukkah sugya, and this is the past twice in Rosh Hashanah and Tainis. So, so the first thing is you cannot take blanket slogans and say, this is the approach. I would suggest, and again, I'm not that story, but I would suggest in yeshiva, we draw a distinction between talking and learning or paskening. We're not paskening, we're talking and learning. In Hanukkah, the Rambam says, he goes through the whole story, and he says, The period of time of Bayashani was a period of time when we still had the right for Malchus. We were independent, and rightfully so. Yovan was occupying. They were strong, they were occupying, and, but it rightfully belonged to us. And that's why when we won, we, our Malchus came back. They were just a cancer on top of the Malchus, and we got rid of it, and, and we came back. When there's a Malchus in Kala Yisrael, and Yisrael is, is, is Tekifi Yidehem, and Kala Yisrael are the ones who are in charge and, 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 and have the right and power, then fighting is the right thing. The Rambam's Melchamas are in Hilchus Melachim. A king, when this king in Kala Yisrael, it means we have our full nationality expressed, and fighting wars are part of it, and that's why I went to war. The second incident happened when Rome already had taken over, and it was gone. We were gone. We were in Gullus, whether we were in Israel or in Rome, it was over. We are in Gullus by them fighting 
is not going to work. Fighting will be counterproductive. And yes, it's extremely degrading to grovel and to go to the Reitzchim and say, oh, we're brothers and we're cousins, and why can't we live B'Sholem? But that's what you have to do to get rid of Xeris. There's one Messias Nefesh to go into battle and to fight to death, and there's another Messias Nefesh to grovel and, 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 and be near yourself to save something. I once heard a long time ago, I, I, just a snippet was on Israeli radio, this is not, I'm talking about 45 years ago maybe, this was a very left-wing professor, but he said something. He said, we did not survive because of the Barkeichle revolt. We survived because of Rabbi Yechner Zakai, who gave in and saved what there was to save. So that means that when we have a challenge, we need to recognize where are we? The context. Are we the Balabatim? Are we not the Balabatim? I have news. We're not the Balabatim. Yes, it's very American to speak your mind and this and so forth. We're not American. We're Eden. And we need to ask ourselves what exactly will get us to tell us. The worst, the worst tactic in a battle is when it's run by emotions and not by seichel. You have to ask yourself, what is it that you want to achieve? Does anyone really think that standing with a safer and darshaning is going to get us any place for the things we need? Um, that's really, really, anyone's about das is, understands we need to think very lucidly and very coldly, what can we get, how can we get it, what do we need to say, and how do we need to say it? We need to protect ourselves. I have another ha'ara. A lot of, Klai Yisrael is blessed with chachamin. Every person in Klai Yisrael picks up a pen, if he's still from the old age, or he, or he does an iser and he writes in an email, where's Dr. Olsen over there? Where he, he writes an email with his opinions. D- d- wonderful. Klai Yisrael is gavali kvalki, shayin's wonderful opinion. But they went to ask an Eitzah. You know who they asked the Eitzah from? A Roman Matronisa. Why? Very simple. They needed to understand what are the Romans thinking. The question is not what's right and what's wrong. The question is, how does the Roman cup work? And that's how I'm going to address it. There are people who do this day in, day out. They sit, and so everyone has Gevaldika Svaris of how we'll do this, we'll say this, this one, that president, this president, the other one, the other one, the other one. It's Einfall. But who sits there day in, day out, works with these people, understands what motivates these people, what, 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 what's sure to send them running the other direction. So the dedicated people who sit and grind through it, it's not that they, they may be much smarter than us, but it's not because they're smarter than us. It's because they just know the machinery of it. And that's why a little humility um, of, 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 of saying, they work with these people, Every, it, it's not, it, these, these are people who have interests, they have interests to be elected, they have interests to be, to, to be recognized as a certain type of person, 
and, and going with that is critical to, to charting a course that Lefachis makes sense. I want to add just one more marker that I think is important to bear in mind. Um, the, the, this, there's a, there's, there was a year, the Reza Horowitz, who sat with the stipler, the in, the out, and wrote down everything he heard from the stipler. It is the most reliable marker of the stipler stuff. He's, there's been, I don't know, probably Ken's firm put out by him, Urchus Rabbeinu, I think it's called, Kilsyakov, or Sabina Kilsyakov. He, he, he wrote it all on paper as he heard it and so on. He has a whole series of, of um, talking about Afghanis, the modern version of Afghanis. And the stipler was extremely, extremely upset with any Afghanis. And he said, Rabbi Isai, we are in Golas by the Zionists. They control the government. They have all the power. What are you doing? Why are you waving a red flag in front of a bull? Why? You have to do Stadler's on the radar screen. And one more thing. Guess what? There was, there was one thing there. You can take a look. It's a Chelekhes, I think. I, I wrote down a marker. Um, hey, he says that there was one incident that they started making, you know, have guns. And he said he's scared that Chinuch is going to lose their funding. Money? What's money? We're talking about Torah, Kashbaru. So I'd like to clarify something. The money we're talking about sits in nobody's pockets. It's the money to bring kids into yeshivas. And yes, a Hamish family will sell the last good for sending kids to yeshiva. But there are plenty of families where if it goes up, the price goes up, they're not going to send their kids. Chinachatzmoy didn't serve the, the old yeshiv. The old yeshiv was not going to send their kids to public schools no matter what. But it served a lot of kids. So we're talking about money or the fascists. There is no thing as money. The money that we're talking about, these government programs, um, are not there to give, to enrich anybody or to give you a better life. They're there for yeshivas. And it's very easy to say, yeah, they should provide this right. Are you willing to roll up your sleeves and to knock from door to door? It's nice to say the stories, but are you willing to do it? The money that we're talking about is money that is tyra. It's not money, it's tyra. <coughs> And therefore, making a decision that can cost funding is, is a decision of nefashis. It's domim tati mashma. The word, it's domim. It, every, every penny brings in potentially a Talmud. And we're not talking about, uh, uh, you know, someone, someone who's, who's, who's uh, 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 very Hamish Yid, no matter what it'll do. Baruch Hashem, for them it's a problem of Aeneas, which is also terrible, but, but, but they'll send the kids yeshiva. There are many kids that this is the difference. So I, I guess the two points that I wanted to try to bring across was, first of all, any slogan that's meant to cover all situations is false. That I can say for sure. There can be chalukah deus, which Gemara applies. We saw two Gemaras. One is Mesir Nefesh all the way, and one is Hachna. Very, very humiliating Hachna. But that's the right thing. It's the same as this nefesh to go in battle and to kill yourself as to stand and say things that you feel like throwing up if you have to. And the second thing is the understanding the difference between being independent and in your own resource or understanding real well that we're a tiny fraction of a percentage. 
and we might make a lot of noise. And believe it or not, Mishpachazen is not the most widely read newspaper in America. Um, and not that any newspaper is widely read in America, but, but, but it, it's, it's, it, it, the we, we can talk and yell and scream and bang. It's nothing. We need to make some real decisions. We need to understand that the people who do this do the change mind. It doesn't mean anyone's right all the time, but it means they at least have the experience and know who they're dealing with. They have to deal with it day in, day out, and understand the system much better than, than people are on the outside. And we need to understand that money, government money, is not lining anyone's pockets, not making anyone rich. It's money that is tyrant. And I think that that's, those are the important points I wanted to bring across. I'm grateful to uh, Rabbi Lubyansky that he brought up that Gemara in Rosh Hashanah because it actually illuminates some of the things I wanted to discuss. Uh, <coughs> last week I met uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Shakobi. I mentioned to him that I was going to be on a panel speaking on religious liberty, and he immediately said, pro or con. Um, <coughs> you know, speaking to religious liberty, is speaking about religious liberty to a room full of, uh, of, of from Yidin, you know, is, uh, is, is a lot like talking about motherhood and apple pie, or maybe uh, tater kugel. Uh, what really is there to discuss? Motherhood is on the app. Uh, susta- sustainable apple pie. <laughs> So the truth is that there is a great deal to discuss, as Rabbi Real mentioned. We could, we could uh, be here all, all night and all weekend talking about different aspects. But um, I'd like to focus in just a couple of things, um, share a few, couple of observations, and ask a few questions. Um, you know, we, we tend to think of religious liberty in, in a, a one-dimensional uh, sense as being just about the law and uh, more specifically about the Supreme Court. I'd like to suggest that there's really a great deal more to religious liberty as it relates to the Frum community than just being about the law. Uh, It's actually about people, uh, how people operate, and it's about America and about about the idea of America. Um, So... Let's, let's begin with the following. Um, you know, and, and again, in this area, as in many other areas, you really have to know the, the realities on the ground, and things aren't always as they seem. So, for example, the idea that culture and the law are not synonymous, American culture and the state of the law are not synonymous. Let's give two examples. It could be for the good or for the bad, as, as, uh, from, from our perspective. Take abortion. Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. But it's a, it's a, it's a, a matter of record that from, from the end of the Carter administration, means through the Reagan, um, Bush 1, Clinton, Bush 2, and Obama administrations, the abortion rate in America dropped and dropped and dropped precipitously. It only ticked up in the during the administration prior to the current one, the abortion rate ticked up, the marriage rate plunged, but before, until then there was a straight line down in the abortion rate, even though there was a constitutional right to abortion. So that obviously was good news. But on the other side of the ledger, take the, which one of the, one of the most 
volatile areas of religious liberty, from our perspective, is the same gender issue. So let's frame it this way. When we talk about the state of religious liberty in general, this is a very good time in America. Religious liberty, in terms of the legal framework for protection of religious liberties, is very, very strong. I'll share a quote from a fellow man named Luke Goodrich, who was one of the leading litigators on behalf of religious liberty, a religious liberty advocate in, 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 in America. And this is what he said. This is a quote that's uh, two years old, but it still certainly is uh, largely or completely uh, true. And this was actually, he, he said this after there were two Supreme Court decisions in the summer of 2020, both 7-2 decisions, both um, on, in, in favor of religious liberty. And he said, religious, religious freedom is on a massive decade-long winning streak at the Supreme Court. Decade-long, meaning ever since 2010 to 2020 at that point. So the Supreme Court has decided 15 cases on religious freedom in the last decade. All 15 are wins for religious freedom. David French added that the string of victories at the Supreme Court is mirrored in the courts below. For every single Supreme Court victory, there are dozens of favorable decisions in federal and state trial courts and courts of appeal. So in terms of the law, things sound like they're going pretty well. And yet, just this week, was it today, I believe, yesterday or today, we, we saw the passage uh, in, in the Senate of the Respect for Marriage Act. And really what this reflects is that as a, as a societal matter, this battle, the battle over uh, what I refer to in my writing as same-gender coupling, has been lost. It's been lost as a matter of public opinion, it's been lost in the court of public opinion, and it's been lost as a political issue. In less than 20 years, support for same-gender relationships for, for formalized same-gender relationships has gone from two-thirds of Americans opposed to two-thirds in favor. Very similar to the, to the drastic shift in attitudes on abortion that took place in abortion before that battle uh, ended. It's not just Democrats. It's not just independents. It's Republicans, too. And the younger they are, the more likely they are to be supportive. A couple of figures from a recent PRRI survey. Republican uh, support is now pretty much split down the middle. But just from, from 2000, since 2014, it's gone from 35% to 51% in a matter of six or eight years. Even among conservative Republicans, it's now at 41%. Moderate Republicans, it's at 67%. And then again, the younger the cohort of Republicans that are surveyed, the stronger they express support for, for these for, this, for these relationships. Same gender coupling has been positioned as a civil rights issue of the 21st century. If you notice in, the, in this Respect for Marriage Act, there were two things in that act. One was in favor of same gender uh, relationships and the other was in favor of interracial marriage. They go together. This is what, what, what civil rights was for, for black Americans in the 1960s is what this issue is uh, in the 21st century. The Mormon Church, 17 million members strong, came, uh, expressed support for this, for this act. A quarter of House Republicans, nearly a quarter of House Republicans, and a quarter of Senate, uh, Senate Republicans voted in favor of the act. And that's a lagging indicator. 
The others feel that it's politically, uh, that they can, they can afford to, to vote against it. That's not, that's not where, 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 the, where the American populace is. Why are conservative Republicans uh, coming out in favor of this? Why is the Mormon church coming out in favor? They, they said it uh, openly. They said it's not, we, we remain adamantly opposed to this kind of lifestyle and to these kinds of relationships. But we also believe in, Amer- in pluralism. We believe in the American ideal of tolerance. We believe that for America to continue as a functioning society, different groups with different beliefs and different lifestyles have to be able to get along. That's what it's about for them. Another point is that political orientation is not synonymous with taking a particular position on religious liberty. There are a lot of surprises, both judicially and politically. Let's talk about in the courts. Again, most of those 15 wins that Luke Goodrich was talking about at the Supreme Court, most of them were decided by supermajorities or unanimously, 7-2, most of those decisions. That means that the liberals on the court joined in these decisions. Let me just uh, quote briefly from Professor Mark Rienzi, the president of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is perhaps the leading law firm advocating on behalf of religious communities in the courts. He said that the courts, the Supreme Court's religious decisions, quote, have harmonized around the principle that despite all our honest and deep-seated disagreements about important questions, robust protection for religious dissenters is essential to our living together in a pluralistic society. The courts move towards anchoring pluralistic approach within the law of liberty liberty as part of a long-term trend. <clears throat> Rick Garnett, another famous name in the religious liberty bar nowadays, said that the Roberts Court has several times affirmed, sometimes unanimously, religious exercise may and should be legislatively accommodated and may be treated as special by governments in keeping with the particular solicitude shown for it in the First Amendment's text and throughout American history. So on the one hand, you have unanimity on the Supreme Court between right and left. On the other hand, one of the greatest obstacles that, that religious communities uh, f- uh, are, are f- face uh, in this area is from the court's 1990 decision, Employment Division v. Smith, right, which, 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 uh, which, which ruled that if you have a, a law that's neutral, not intended to... Uh, to, uh, to target um, uh, religious believers, and it's generally applicable, then it can burden religious practice. One of the, one, it's, 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 a, it's a big question, open question of whether it may be overruled by the, by the current court. But in any event, who was the author of that decision? None other than Antonin Scalia, a deeply religious Catholic with about seven or nine kids in his family, and an icon of the conservative legal establishment. So all bets are off in terms of this sort of thing. Politically, politically, uh, when I had the, 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 the schus of, of, uh, of working as an attorney at Aguz Yisrael uh, over two decades ago, uh, under and alongside Rabbi Chaim David Zwibel, who remains a, uh, a treasured mentor and friend. So I worked on a case. Uh, we, I submitted a brief in a case called Bronx Household of Faith. This was a case in New York City in which uh, houses of worship wanted to be able to use public school facilities for their services. There were some 80, 80 such uh, houses of worship across the, across the city. It was a big issue. And, uh, and, and it was a big question, and we submitted uh, a brief, 
and um, I, I forget the exact resolution that went up to maybe even to the to the Second Circuit. It was certainly in, it was in the federal courts, and I remember our our brief was actually cited favorably by uh, by Judge Preska. I don't recall what the uh, religion actually was, but I do know this: that when Bill De Blasio, New York's uh, most progressive mayor ever, came into office. Uh, he immediately opened the uh, open public schools, or certainly uh, came in very strongly in favor. Again, I don't re- recall if the final resolution was in the courts, or was Bill de Blasio just changed the, the city's regulations on this. But he said, absolutely. Listen, we live in a politic society. You have to be able to, to accommodate everyone. Another issue that I was involved in, not as an attorney, but, uh, but, but uh, as a, using the advocacy of the pen, was on the Mitsitsa issue, which went on for years and years and years. And we had a Republican mayor, Mike Bloomberg, talking about the 10,000 black hats screaming outside his windows. And when Bill de Blasio, New York's most progressive mayor, came into office, revoked it. Day one. Day one, he revoked. He made that entire problem go away for the from community. And on the other side, we have f- large from communities up- upstate in this, in this state where uh, one of the greatest thorns in the side of those very large firm communities has come from the Republican side of the aisle. So, again, uh, there are a lot of surprises in this area. So the point is, religious liberty isn't just about where you stand on religion and morality, what your particular religious worldview is, or what, or what you believe in terms of what's, uh, what's, what's right morally but it's also about where you stand on pluralism in America. Of course, you have uh, our real enemies in these issues are the militant same-gender activists, the militant anti-circumcision activists. Those people are not interested in any sort of tolerant America. They only have their views, and there is no other way. But for a very, very large swath, and most of America, most of America, which consists of fair-minded Americans, of all political stripes, of all religions, or no religion at all, they're interested, many, a great many of them are interested in a pluralistic, welcoming United States. So this raises a number of questions for us, particularly, let's say, in the same gender area, which, again, is, 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 so, uh, is so explosive these days, and from, from which perhaps the greatest threat to our religious liberties today comes. Das Tyre is what governs for us, Period. But in order to arrive at it, we also need, we need the input not only of attorneys, we also need the input of sociologists to understand the reality in the United States. I think sometimes that perhaps at Moetzis meetings, perhaps we can't invite Ro- uh, Roman noblewomen, but perhaps we can sometimes have sociologists, and perhaps there are sociologists, for all I know, who are attending uh, Moetzis meetings and are giving their input, political scientists and sociologists who are telling us what are the realities on the ground today. So that, for example, when it comes to the same gender issue, if in fact the the societal battle for the hearts and minds of Americans has largely been lost, and it is now a civil rights issue, and it's something, and from their perspective, we can't really say that they're wrong. From from the way they see things, and and, and as as, uh, people who love America, who's to say that they're wrong from, from their perspective? But the question becomes, if we can assume that in these areas our religious rights are adequately protected, which is a very big if, and it's not at all clear, and that's why there was a lot of criticism. There were amendments offered to this Respect for Marriage Act, which were, which were uh, turned, turned back. 
But if we were to assume, in the best of worlds, that our, our own religious rights and those of our institutions, etc., would be adequately protected, is it still left for us to speak out on such an issue? Does it make a difference that the societal battle on the issue has largely been lost? Does it make a difference that in, in, in coming out in opposition to it, we are opposing, we are, we are seen as opposing American ideals like pluralism and tolerance? And finally, will demanding our own religious rights while speaking out in, 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 uh, in, in denigration of other Americans, of fellow Americans' own rights to, to live their lifestyle, will that come back to, to hunt us and to hurt us when in other areas of religious freedom, when we need to assert rights in terms of shechita and in terms of mila and all the other, the panoply of other sorts of things that come up? And while we're asking questions, another one, which is, if in fact we do have a duty to speak out on moral issues in society, even when our own rights are protected, in other words, if it's not just about religious liberty, but moral advocacy, proactive moral advocacy, then why only on the same gender issue? Should that duty perhaps also extend to speaking out on issues of honesty, of financial crimes, of adultery? These two are to Eva to Hashem, according to Scripture. And yes, Rabbi Lubyansky mentioned the marble. But how quickly you forget the Chazal tells us, yeah. I'd like to go on to uh, another, uh, another point, if I may. Um, even before I came to the Aguda, uh, for a couple of years I was in the uh, outreach field, so that's probably why they refer to me as a rabbi. I was, I, I, I was surprised to find I was preordained uh, for this session. Um, but probably it's a uh, vestige from my Kirov days. So for a couple of years I ran a Kirov program out on Long Island, and uh, I ran a breakfast reception, a fundraiser for the program, at first and only foray uh, into fundraising. Uh, and I, we brought out for the, uh, to, as, as a speaker at the, at, the, at the breakfast a fellow whom I knew, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful Jew by the name of Ruven Russell, who was a, uh, from uh, an Ehrlich comedian, and... Um, he came and he, uh, he got up and he said that uh, two weeks ago I got a call from Rabbi Cobra asking me if I believed in free speech. I said, of course I do. He said, well, you're giving one in two weeks. Um, so we understand that free speech can mean different things. And um, freedom of religion, too, we have to know, just as free speech is not necessarily free, as they say, so too freedom of religion is not necessarily free. There's a price to be paid for it. <coughs> we need to exercise our rights to religious freedom. Absolutely, we should exercise them, and we should fight for them, advocate for them. But we have to do it as Americans. It's a, it's a right we have as Americans. We have to do it as Americans who buy into the idea of America. So I'd just like to give some context here. You know, we like to think about how we're in this fight for religious liberty, and we're comrades in arms, you know, with the evangelicals, and with the Mormons, and with the Catholics, and the truth is, we're, very, we're nothing at all like them. So let me just, let, let, let's, let's take a little snapshot of not how we see ourselves, but how, how the rest of the country sees us, or at least many, 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 many Americans see us. We're a very small, numerically very small minority community, unlike the evangelicals and the Mormons and the Catholics. Unlike those groups, we stand out from the rest of America in how we dress, how we talk, how we live. For the most part, we live together in our own insular communities, we don't, we don't meld into the, into the surrounding, surrounding society. And there are other things that distinguish us. 
which maybe we, we don't think about, but you can be sure that lots of other Americans have taken note of. A very significant percentage of our members are among the highest earning Americans. Anyone driving through many of our communities or working in those communities, visiting those communities, might, might be struck by the preponderance of some very pricey homes on a par with some of Americans' wealthiest, wealthiest areas. At the very same time, there's a significant percentage of our communities that there's a high rate of reliance on government assistance programs. We have the worst of both worlds. And then we're a community that has intense loyalties to a foreign nation across the globe. We travel there frequently. We send financial aid there. And in general, we display an attachment to that country that's very unlike that which Italians feel for Italy or Irish-Americans feel for Ireland. And we don't have lots of people in our communities who sacrifice for this country in the military, the police and fire departments. Now, none of these things are inherently, are inherently wrong. None of them are even un-American in any way whatsoever. But taken together, they set us apart and they put us at risk. They place us under much greater scrutiny and they raise the standards of behavior that we have to live up to, much higher than it is for other Americans. This is all context to talk about how we go about asserting our religious rights and what it means to say that religious freedom is not free. We have to remember that when we talk about asserting our religious rights, it's not enough for the law to be on our side or to be able to win court cases. We have to be able to convince actual human beings, people with feelings, people with biases, that we possess goodwill and that we are loyal to America. Only then can we hope and expect that they will view our claim to be treated like every other American with favor. You know, if to remember, religious liberties don't start in courts. They certainly don't start at the Supreme Court. They start at the New York City Human Rights Commission. They start at the Zoning Board or at the Health Department. And these are, these are, are, are bodies that are composed of real people with thoughts and feelings. The religious disputes start with the laws that politicians pass. Believe it or not, politicians are people too. And those politicians are beholden to their constituents. They're beholden to the court of public opinion, also comprised of real people. Even when cases do end up in court, they go through multiple levels of appeal. Very few of them end up on the Supreme Court, which has the complete discretion whether to uh, accept, to hear, or whether to reject cases. And even court decisions themselves are not just a matter of cut and dried law. Otherwise, you wouldn't have dueling 100-page judicial opinions. They're very nuanced. And in this area of religious liberty, we know that there are all sorts of tests they created, the lemon test and this test and the three-prong and the four-prong test and so on and so forth. You can come out with any, any conclusion you want. The conclusion will be based on, 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 the, on, on what you begin with. And these, these judges are writing these opinions, they're also human beings. And their view on the law will be filtered through their minds and hearts with all its biases. And as we've seen, even conservative judges, even religious ones, even very religious Americans like the Mormons, they see the same gender issue as a matter of fairness and pluralism. So if we're going to convince people, we're going to make that case in the courts and in, in the halls of government and in the court of public opinion, we're going to have to, and if we're going to press our case for a fair shake as Americans, then we're going to have, we're going to, have to show, we're going to have to demonstrate that we, we, that we believe in fairness. We believe in American ideals as well. 
What are the practical applications of what I'm talking about here? Well, it's, we can talk about it on the macro and on the micro level. In the macro level, it means that we have to be seen as Americans who are law-abiding and who are considerate, who are concerned with the welfare of fellow Americans. Only then can we hope to be treated charitably when we press our own rights. If we're seen as self-interested, disdainful of others' needs, looking to get from the country but not to contribute, it undercuts our position on religious freedom, and it also, it also raises the specter of potential anti-Semitism, of course. It's also true on the micro level, where it actually undercuts real religious liberty concerns. Let me give two examples from the COVID era. First example is, is that I think we, have, uh, we had uh, Rabbi uh, Lefkowitz sitting here. I've written about Chaim Aruchim and about end-of-life issues, such an important area of religious liberty. And all the efforts that Chaim Aruchim and others have made to build relationships with ethics committees and hospitals, to go and advocate on behalf of our view of the sacredness of life. But I wonder, after COVID, whether it's quite as easy to go in and do that now. When you had communities in which you had weddings going on every night, hundreds of people dancing together, packed crowds, maskless, dancing night after night, and then we go in the next day into, into to a hospital ethics committee and talk to them about the sacredness of life and how Shah and how just another couple of days for the Zayda to live is so, is, is so critical for us. It's not an easy case to make. Here's what the Second, Second Circuit Court of Appeals, when they ruled on our behalf in favor of our community about the COVID restrictions on shuls. Quote from, the, from their opinion, even taking these assertions at face value, the governor must explain why the order's density restrictions targeted at houses of worship are more effective than generally applicable restrictions on the duration of gatherings or requirements regarding mass and distancing. The, government, the governor may not, of course, presume that religious communities will not comply with such generally applicable re- regulations. Well, I'm, hope, I'm happy that none of, the court, none of the three judges on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals had an invitation to a wedding during COVID or to certain other events that took place on a regular basis in our communities. Or maybe they wouldn't, or maybe they would say the government perhaps wasn't, the governor was perhaps entitled to make such a presumption. Josh Blackman is a, is a, is a uh, law professor who's, who's a good guy. He's on, the, he's, he's on our side in terms of religious liberty. He's a conservative. And he talks about how there was a ruling by a court in California with an, it had issued, a, a judge had issued, a federal judge had issued a complete ban on indoor worship. The judge wrote, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. The First Amendment may not be used to make it one. Blackman wrote in response to this, he said, come on, how does the worship follow rigorous protocols? They prohibit singing and chanting. They timed their exit and entry to prohibit crowding. Judges are wedded to this March 2020 stereotype where people chant and scream at the top of their lungs for hours on end. This narrative is simply false. Please get on with the times. Who was right? Professor Blackman or the judge in California? Well, I mean, regarding our community. I don't know. So, you know, again, it, the, the religious liberty is about the law, but it's very, very much about the realities of America. It's, it's very much about talking to the Matronisa and finding out what works in America. It's very much about, about trying to make that common cause of we are all brothers and are we not human beings as well, of appealing to their conscience, appealing to American ideals. And I'd like to close with a final question. 
and that is this. Some of the biggest challenges that we face in the area of religious liberty come about as a result of government funding. We see that in this country. We see that in the education cases right now that we're dealing with in New York State. And, of course, all, all, all these same gender issues, they all come, come down to government funding. We see that in this country, we see it in Eretz Israel, where government funding for education also leads to incremental governmental encroachment. There's a whole, there's a whole Haredi division in the Ministry of Education there, which is dedicated to asserting ever greater control. Why is that? That's because the First Amendment deals with the interface of government and religion. It addresses government establishment of religion and government restriction of religion and of speech. It doesn't address the behavior of private citizens. So it's at the nexus, the interface between government and religion that these problems arise. And so I close with this question. Is it perhaps time to think about ways in which we can circumvent many of these problems by using the great material abundance that Akash Baruch Hu has bestowed upon our generation to create endowments that will allow us to begin the process of becoming independent of reliance on government, which will have many blessings, but one of which is to hopefully help make the issue of religious freedom go away for our communities. Thank you very much. Three questions that came in by Pigeon Carry, by Carry Pigeon? Pony Express. Pony Express, okay. First question is, when is my 715, right? <laughs> that's, that's the most important question. Okay, what is the relationship between us remaining hidden, but also interacting in communities around us? Seemingly, we have to be friendly and courteous and respectful, but where do we draw the lines in terms of protecting ourselves from outside influences? I, I think that that it shouldn't be difficult in terms of anyone who has a little bit das and seichel, saying good morning to a person in the street, how are you, courtesy and deep emotional connection are two worlds. There are herets, nimos, things like that. Unfortunately, we tend, when we live in insular communities, um, we, we don't somehow we skip over this. And it's true even amongst ourselves. Courtesy is, is, is a necessity when you live with other people. The more Hamish we are, the more we are one community, those things break down and it's like one happy camp or dorm, which, okay, so as far as inter-people is one thing, but when you deal with other people, to <coughs> say hello, to say thank you, sir, please, not to evade, not to go around the line. I, I don't know why that's never spoken about. Um, and if they do speak about it, speak about it in terms of Eva, Holocaust. How about just Menschlichkeit? I, I don't know why it's, there's not an easy line between just their herits versus deep friendship. Um, they, you, know, I, you know, if anything, we're influenced from certain types of people when we when we act coarse and vulgar and and sort of. Where would you? What do we make of the fact that people claim racism by pretty much everything, but Yidin being made fun of or picked up about anything? 
So, we have a choice. We can, we can wail and say, oh, you're picking on us, it's not fair, it's this and that. Or you can be realistic and say, yes. When somebody comes <coughs> coming with a Bekesh and payas, they look strange, they look weird, and they say weird things about it. It's our business to decide what's important and what's not important. We're not little kids. We're not, it doesn't bother us, or maybe it does bother us that people say things, and it's fair or not fair. Tachlis. It's not an issue of are they being fair or not. My parents were European, and my father's from Lithuania, my mother's from Poland, and my father said that there was like a vertel. There used to be um, gypsies would go by and they would steal and they would steal the laundry off the lines. And laundry was worth something, and it, and it was so on. So somebody was once complaining bitterly, and then he sort of, uh, then he sort of felt bad, like he's so cheap, it's not that expensive. He said, it bothers me. The money doesn't bother me, but the principle and morals of these people bother me. Is that, uh, why should that be a concern of ours? Yes, it's not fair. Tachlis, so, so what do we do about it? We have to think about what's important, what's not important. And finally, how does one interact with the community in a work situation? I don't think what the other person is should be our business. The same thing, he's, a, he's an other person, and that's it. Um, it, it, it. If a person starts talking about their private lives, we should, we should, it should not be something we get engaged in. He's another person, and that's it. And it, that same, there is, no, there is no better insulator than courtesy and professionalism. I don't know who you are, I don't care who you are, please have a seat, come in, that's it. Your life, your private life, your beliefs, your doings are not really my business, and I don't want them to be my business. Ethan, you're... I'd just like to address the, the second question, the, 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 the one that talks about um, that people can claim ra racism about pretty much anything or everything, but Yidin being made fun of or picked on, uh, uh, but, but Yidin are, 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 on the other hand, made fun of or picked on about anything. I'd like to say that you know the um, we we can we we can be strenuous advocates uh, on behalf of religious rights, or we can choose to play the victim and see ourselves as being back in Poland in 1840. But we can't do both at the same time. We have to make a decision if we want to press our rights as Americans. Then we have to see ourselves as Americans, and not buy into. Victimology. Now, if we are victims, then we, we should not tolerate that. That's, that's the blessing of America. We don't have to tolerate it. But we have to do it in a respectful way and in a way that doesn't veer into victimology. It's one thing to be a victim. It's another, another to buy into victimhood, which is something which has become very, very much um, a fa fa fashionable. It used to be fashionable only in the left, but in the last number of years it's become extremely fashionable on the right as well. And it's important to understand that this, too, will undercut our religious rights because... When you, have, when you have this kind of schizophrenic view that I think others may have of the front community, where on Monday you have the front community coming out in favor of law and order and how defund the police, how crazy that is, and how you had these riots in 2020 and those people have to be dealt with and so on and so forth, and we're so in favor of law and order and the police and, and, and so on, that's on Monday. Then on Tuesday, when a from Jew is in the crosshairs of federal prosecutors, and perhaps very, very unjustly so. And again, this is not to say that we, we shouldn't raise money and that we shouldn't get the best attorneys and the best defense and have these people, etc. But when you have people, even people in very responsible positions in the firm community, 
using Lashinas about the FBI or about federal prosecutors or about the judicial system, and, and, et cetera. You, talking about them as Nazis or, it's, or in, in the most, again, remember, in the Internet age, there are no secrets. You know, Twitter, that, that, that's that, tweet, that tweeting bird, brings it all over the world. There are no secrets. They're hearing and seeing everything that's being said. So that's on Tuesday. And a, and a non-Jew looks at that split screen and says, well, on, on Monday, you were all in favor of back the blue and law and order. And then on Tuesday, you were, you were using the most vile language to describe law enforcement and judges and the institutions of this country, right? And you were cheering on people who were, who were bashing police officers and bloodying them on the steps of the Capitol, right? And you were coming out in, in favor of undermining American democracy. They say, how do, we resi- how do we reconcile this contradiction? The only reconcile is, on Monday, it was my guy. It was my ox was being gored. And on Tuesday, it was the other guy's ox. Ah, it means he's just in it for yourself. You're not in it for America. We're not going to win religious liberty cases that way, like I said before. Judges know about this. Politicians know about this. And regular average Americans know about what we're saying and what we're thinking. So we have to be care- careful. We should, never, we should never accept being victims, but never to fall into victimology and victimhood. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. Enjoy the rest. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.